Good morning, everyone. For those of you who have, I have not met, my name is Carrie Jester, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the deacons here at the Mountain Church. And in today's passage that our friend Nathan read to us, 2 Samuel 22, it is a song of deliverance. It is 51 verses, a lot of poetry, metaphors, symbolism. Uh, poetry is not my strong point, but bear with me. We're going to work through it together. My plan is to take this in chunks and read about three or four or five verses at a time, talk about that, move on to the next one, go through some notes here, and then maybe find something at the end that we can pull out from it. Does that work for everybody? Awesome. Well, I don't have a plan B, so I'm glad you guys are agreeable with it. So this song of thanksgiving here, it's almost identical to Psalms 18. The only differences are minor uh, spelling and grammatical errors. The first verses in both of these, in Psalms 18 and this one, are different as well. Other than that, it's almost identical. In Psalms 18, it has musical directions, and so that was meant for um, to aid in public worship. It was to be sung by an individual or a group as part of a, of a religious service. But here, this is just used to showcase what God had done in David's life. This is also the longest quotation that we have from David. It's 365 words in Hebrew. I won't be reading those words in Hebrew. And a summary of this psalm before we get started, it might be that because David scrupulously obeyed the Lord, the Lord rewarded him by responding to his pleas, delivering him during times of trouble and exalting him. For this, the Lord is to be praised. And I think what we're going to learn in this whole story and this poetic manifestation of, of God's goodness is actually not about David, but it is about God. And if you remember last week, and Rick, I think this was new to you, we talked about chiastic structure and uh, <clears throat> the, uh, that Daniel had, had explained that these last four chapters, 21 through 24, have a chiastic structure to it. Uh, and the purpose of that is you are mirroring ideas that go to a focal point, kind of like a bullseye, is what Daniel talked about for these last four verses. Well, in this chapter alone, it also has a chiastic structure to it, and it should be up here on the screen. First of all, you have praise the Lord in verses 1 through 4 and in verses 47 through 51. And then B would be the Lord's deliverance of David in verses 5 through 20 and in verses 30 through 46. And that center part, the reason for David's deliverance in verses 21 through 29. And I think the overarching theme in all of these is the Lord. The Lord is the center point and the one that was working in David's life. So let's go ahead and jump in here. Uh, this first part, praise the Lord, verses 1 through 4. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. So like I said, we see there in verse 1, it's an introduction to this song. And then in verse 2, uh, we actually see that the song starts. In verses 2 through 4 there, we see that the language is full of metaphors. And David began, began this here with eight praise-filled descriptions of the Lord. He says, rock, fortress, deliverer, rock again, Horn of my salvation, shield, stronghold, refuge, savior. All of these images reflect, reflect that the Lord is a strong and loving protector. 
And each of these descriptions is also very personal. Notice all of the mys in front of it. It's my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. There's actually 10 mys that are in this section. The use of the my show, shows here that it's a very personal helper, a living resource in the king's life whose intervention had been the difference between life and death for the king quite often. And seven of these images present the Lord as a defensive refuge in which David found protection from all of life's threats that he talked about there in chapter one. And for the warrior David, a man who had been constantly threatened by, by enemies, as he had stated in verse one, uh, on and off the battlefield, that the Lord's shelter and shield were treasured provisions for him. It was something that he never took for granted. And I think his use of all the demise here is that this wasn't just a head knowledge of what he had as God, but this was a very personal experience of what he himself had experienced. And this was something very real to him that he experienced God in this way. So we move on from praise the Lord, that first section, to now the Lord's deliverance, verses 5 through 20. I'm going to start here in uh, 5 and just go through 7. For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. So we see there in verse 7 that David reveals a secret that enabled him to cope with the threat, with the uh, stresses that were threatening to overwhelm him that he talked about in 5 and 6. He says he called out to the Lord. He cries to the only one who can bring the waves of death, the torrents of destruction under control. And it says, from his temple, he heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. Temple there could be a reference to heaven or it could be the earthly worship site where the Ark of the Covenant resided. But either way, David's cry came to the ears of the Lord. All David had to do was cry out to the Lord and he heard him. Moving on in verses 8 through 11. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. So we see here in this passage that the picture begins with a reminder of what God had actually done when he met his people at Mount Sinai in the days of Moses. The shaking of the earth, the smoke and the fire, that's almost identical to what's ex uh, ex what is described in Exodus 19.16. If you go back there and look, you can see that there. And in verse 8 it says, because God was angry. I enjoyed what John Woodhouse had to say in his commentary on this. He said, people sometimes object to the idea that God can be angry. But I think it is good news that God is angry about violence and hatred and death and destruction, about cancer and war, about starvation and cruelty. Would you rather that God didn't care? I thought that was a good thing to point out. I think in our day and age today, people don't like to focus on the anger of God. We like to focus on the love, those good feelings that we have inside. But God is a many-faceted God, and he has a lot of different sides to his character. And righteous anger is definitely one of them, and we see that here. We also see here the Lord's overwhelming response is magnified in these verses. God metaphorically moved mountains, as he says there in verse 8. It's talked about the imagery is almost that of an earthquake, and then in verse 9, the imagery is that of a volcano. 
two very, very powerful forces that are just at the Lord's disposal. We also see here in this passage, David's uh, frailty and the difference between the Lord's strength. Listen to some of these here. David's cry was one of terrified weakness and vulnerability. The Lord's response was one of terrifying cataclysmic power. Weak words had come from David's mouth as he called out for help. Devouring fire came from the Lord's mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. David was earthbound and on his way to Sheol. The Lord was in heaven with dark clouds under his feet. He parted the heavens and came down. David was sinking beneath the waves of death. The Lord appeared on the, wing, winds of the, wing, on the wings of the wind. So we can see that contrast and the difference between the power of God and the weakness of, of man as what's described here. Verses 12 through 16. He made darkness around him his canopy, thick clouds a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice, and he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the world were laid bare, at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of, of the breath of his nostrils. So again here we see powerful meteorological images fill this section. Each of them portrays God as a being whose power and presence are vastly superior to all things human. The Lord is described as residing in a rain cloud with lightning and thunder. The thunder and lightning are also associated with the Lord's voice there in verse 14. And the Lord's breath in verse 16 is associated with laying bare the foundations of the earth and exposing the channels of the sea. The language here is similar to the parting of the Red Sea that we see in Exodus 15.8. We're going to see several other uh, areas here where, where David is likening himself to Moses, and we'll get into that in a minute. And then the second half of that verse in 16 returns to the Lord's anger as an explanation of why this occurred. I thought it was interesting, uh, Alistair Begg, in one of his sermons said, why didn't he just say, the Lord intervened on my behalf, when summing up verses 8 through 16? That would have been six words instead of 41 words. But that's not poetry, I guess, right? Moving on, 17 through 20. He sent from on high, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. We see here in this passage that uh, each of these verses includes uh, a reference to me or my. It's a return to that that we saw in the first four verses that were absent in verses 8 through 16. So David's high and powerful God here is, is, is depicted as a caring and saving God. When David was sinking in deep or the many waters, the Lord sent from on high. He took him and drew him out. He also rescued him from a strong enemy, and they were mighty. That passage that says, he drew me out, it uses the exact same verb that's used in Exodus 2.10 for Moses being drawn out of the waters of the Nile. And that verb, it actually sounds like Moses, and that's where the name comes from, and that's why they named him Moses. And he's using that exact same word here to describe being drawn out of the waters. In verse 19, he switches from water to the meadow. 
The word support there that's at the end of verse 19, it can be translated staff, like what a shepherd would carry. And by using this metaphor, David affirmed that the Lord acted on his behalf as a protective deliverer and a good shepherd. And if you remember early on in David's life when we were first introduced to him, what was his job? His job was as a shepherd. So he's using metaphors and things here that are very relatable to him and that were very played important roles in his life. The Lord brought David to a broader, spacious place, it said. And this can denote, uh, denotes a freedom of movement. It was something different from the restrictive caves and the wilderness hideouts that David would have been used to as he was fleeing and running. But also, that word broad land there, uh, it's the same word that was used in Exodus 3.8 where Moses was at the burning bush and God said to Moses, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land to a good and broad land. It's that same word broad there, a land flowing with milk and honey. And again, he's echoing the Exodus experience here. David is presenting himself as Moses and it's the kind of salvation that God worked through Moses in the Exodus is the same kind of salvation that God worked in David's life from Saul and from his enemies. So we kind of see a theme there of Saul comparing himself uh, to David in this way and that the way that God rescued uh, the people of the Israelites there is the same way that God had rescued David. So moving on to that center section, the reasons for David's deliverance, and it is the Lord, verses 21 through 29. We'll start in 21 through 25. It says, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statues I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. So David here moves the poem forward from discussing what the Lord has done on his behalf to the issue of why God had done it. And it's interesting as you read through that, the first time I did, the words that David used kind of struck me as funny from a man that was an adulterer and a murderer. He says that... Uh, the Lord dealt with him according to his righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and from his statutes I did not turn aside. It kind of made me think, really? Is that, is that actually true? Um, how could one who committed adultery and murder speak in this way? And some people have wanted to attribute this psalm to an earlier time in David's life and that it might ease some of this. So if you were to put this maybe after 2 Samuel 7, before the issues of Bathsheba and, uh, and Uriah, but I don't think that's a good way to look at it. And I really appreciated John Woodhouse's commentary on this, and it's a long quote. I'm going to read it to you, and I'm going to break it up with a verse in the middle. But he says, <clears throat> perhaps the first thing to be said is that the Bible writer who placed this song of David at this point in his history was not an idiot. He knew that we would read it after we had read the full and frank accounts of David's faults. He knew that this song would be read by people who knew very well that David was an adulterer and a murderer. So we have to ask, how is it possible for an adulterer and murderer to speak as David spoke in verses 21 through 25? And I'm reminded, if you have your Bibles, turn back to 2 Samuel 12, 13. A couple chapters back. This was a passage that I spoke on at the end of um, September. 
and to set the stage here, this was a point where David did not know that his sins were, or his sins were being brought to light. God had sent Nathan to him to expose it. And so this was after the point when Nathan had exposed it. There, starting in verse 13, it said, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sins. You shall not die. So after David's adultery and murder, Nathan told him, the Lord has put away your sins. You shall not die. And it's interesting that the willingness to confess and reform is what distinguished David from Saul. We see that difference between there. And I really like this point that John Woodhouse made. He says, we may remember David's sin and put it on him, but the Lord does not. David can describe his life without reference to his failures, not because he is self-righteous, but because he is deeply aware that God had done what Nathan told him God had done. So verses 21 through 25 are then asserting that the Lord dealt with David as a forgiven, cleansed man. His righteousness that once was mixed with much unrighteousness had been washed clean. And I thought, yes, that's, that's a, a good way to look at that. And what really stood out to me was that part about uh, we may remember David's sin and put it on him, but the Lord does not. I think sometimes we want to put hurdles in people's lives for them to jump over when it's really up to the Lord. That's not up to us. And I think that's a good reminder here. We see later on, uh, the Lord himself were characterized David as have, as have been washed clean uh, and that he walked in his commandments is what I wanted to say. We see that in 1 Kings 3 and 1 Kings 9, 1 Kings 11, and also in 1 Kings uh, 14. Excuse me here, getting a little dry mouth. Talk amongst yourselves for a second. <laughs> Continuing on there, verse 26 to 29, we see with the merciful you show yourself merciful, with the blameless man you show yourself blameless, with the purified you deal purely, and with the crooked you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. So having revealed why he received the Lord's blessing, David here makes six observations about God's treatment of various types of people. He suggests four virtues that please the Lord. Faithfulness, moral blamelessness, purity, humility. The list is suggestive of God-honoring behavior, but it's obviously not exhaustive. And while the virtuous find God to be a source of life and health, the wicked we see here, they experience God's wrath. Those who are crooked find that the Lord is torturous. Those who are haughty, haughty ultimately find that the Lord brings them down. Then there in verse 28, the focus now widens from the individual to that of the community. A humble people are saved and the haughty are brought down low. In verse 29, David found his Lord to be his lamp who shone light on his path ahead, allowing him to move forward confidently. Next, we move back to B, the Lord's deliverance there in verses 30 through 46. That first verse 30 says, for by you I run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. So David could burst forth beyond his own limitations because of the Lord's help. And it was interesting as I was reading this, I thought about Philippians 4.13 and how we oftentimes misuse that verse, especially in the sports arena, and we make it about physical prowess when that's not what the passage is. But David could use that here. He said it's because of the Lord he could jump over a wall. So he should have had that under his bill of his baseball cap or something like that. Verses 31 through 33, this God 
His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. If you notice here, these three verses, they kind of make one single unit. And both 31 and 33 begin with the same word. It says, for this or this God. And then also there in 33, this God. And he also says, it's my strong refuge. And at the end of 31, he says, I take refuge in him. And the Lord's word, he says there, the word of the Lord proves true. Uh, the Lord's word, both as it was written in the law and spoken through the prophets, it had guided David to safety and success. The Lord was David's only source of divine help because there was no other God but the Lord, is what David says there. And if you notice there in verse 33, he said, this God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. It sounds as though the, that we have correctly understood those puzzling statements that David made about his innocence in verses 21 through 25. It is the Lord, not David, who made him blameless. Continuing on, 34 and 35, he made my feet like the feet of a deer, and he set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. So the verbs here of this section, they have the Lord as their subject, and David attributes his military prowess to the Lord. It's not his own ability. David's feet, like the feet of the deer, it's like a metaphor expressing inner stability, strength, and adeptness at handling life's struggles. The Lord's past led the man of faith to great prominence and domination in the wilderness of life, but God also enabled him to stand on the heights. And every part of David's life was transformed, his hands for war, and that he could bend a bow of bronze. Then there in 36 through 39, you have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. You gave me a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them, I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. So again here, David's recounting the successes that he enjoyed over the Israelites, or over his enemies, excuse me, and over those <clears throat> that he defeated because of the strength that God gave him. It was the Lord's agent of judgment, and he crushed the enemy, leaving them under his feet, unable to rise. 40 through 43, for you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. Those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. Again here we see the victory celebration continues. He recounts his triumphs over his foes. And overarching this celebration of success uh, is a recognition that the Lord, it's not any talent or ability within himself, is the reason for his unparalleled success. David is continually pointing it back to the Lord and back to the Lord. Then we're out of that section. We're into this last, 47 through 51. Are you guys still with me here? Yeah, awesome. Actually, I skipped a section there, 44 to 46. Are you still with me? <laughs> you delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as a head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. 
So the Lord delivered him from strife with my people, it says. And whether that came from a family member like Absalom, his son, or whether it was from the Israelite tribe like Sheba the Benjamite, Benjaminite, we saw in uh, chapter 20. And those were probably the most difficult of all to endure because this was from the people closest to him. This was from his family. This was from his own tribe. And that would have been the most difficult to endure. So successful was David, though, in his military encounters with foreigners that even people he did not know became subject to him and obeyed him and came trembling out of their fortresses, it said. And one of the commentaries I was reading, it said that it was almost as if he would come up to cities and they would just come out and surrender to him. They wouldn't even, they wouldn't even fight. The, the, the word the, um, of who he was had, had went ahead of him. And people were like, that's it. We don't want to fight. We're just going to turn ourselves over to him. It is funny there in verse 44, though, he says, you kept me as head of the nations. And at his greatest point, it was still just a small Middle Eastern empire that he was in charge of. And I'm going to get to that in just a minute. But I'm going to continue on to this last section. Praise the Lord, verses 47 through 51. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. So in the concluding part of this poem, we see that David returns to the initial theme of praising the Lord. David's giving credit to where credit is due. It was the Lord's victory. And every good thing that came from him came because of the Lord. And the Psalms here, it closes on a, on a triumphant note. Um, and there at the end where he says that uh, he uses the terms about uh, he was the Lord's anointed. This is a link to Hannah's prayer. It was in 1 Samuel 2.10. And this is what started out that section. And she had said, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And this is the same words that he's using here, his king and his anointed. And God will exalt the Lord's anointed. So it's kind of as Samuel started out and now we're here at the end. It's almost kind of bookend by this thought. And it was Hannah's song that started out. And here it's uh, David's song that's going to close it out. John Mackey had to say, as David reflects on his reign, he discerns that the events of his life had not been by chance occurrences produced by some arbitrary and impersonal fate, but had been the product of the active intervention of God in his life. Unlike the self-promoting propaganda of many human rulers, the covenant king enthusiastically acknowledges his dependence on the Lord, who has provided him with deliverance and success. And I thought that was a good summation here of what David did in this song. And going back to that part that I referenced in 44 where he said that he was ahead of the nations, this was another thing I found interesting in pointing it back to Christ. He says, let me remind you that David, at the very height of his power, was only ruled over a small Middle Eastern empire. Was he getting a little carried away with himself in this song, the head of the nations? I mean, who is he kidding? This is not a megalomania. It is David's understanding of what God had promised. The promises were not fully realized in David's own lifetime, but as the promise said, there would be a son of David in whom it would be realized. So the song of David makes sense fully when we, when we realize that the one it really fits is Jesus Christ. He is the son of David, who is everything that David failed to be. 
Like David, he was threatened with destruction. This culminated in the cross. Like David, he called upon his father in his distress, and the father, re father rescued him from his strong enemy by raising him from the dead. He is a perfectly righteous, blameless, pure one. He is the Lord to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given. And the news of his kingdom is going into the nations of the world. He will overthrow all who make themselves enemies of his kingdom. And I just thought that was great to point that back to Christ there as we know that all of scriptures points to that. And that's 2 Samuel 22. And it's a song and I didn't sing it to you, so you should be <laughs> grateful. But as we close, I do want us to think about how this relates to us, or maybe what are some of the takeaways. So David here is retelling of how the Lord saved him from all his enemies and Saul. So I start thinking to myself, who is my Saul? Who are my enemies? And you know, I don't have a Saul. I don't have a guy that's chasing me around, trying to kill me, and I'm having to hide in, in caves. I'm not at war with the uh, cities around me. I actually find the people in SeaTac and in Buren to be quite amicable, and I kind of like them. So I'm not at war with them. Uh, my son, Lucas, is not trying to overthrow the Jester throne and take over the Jester kingdom, so I'm not having to deal with that. So what is it that I'm fighting against, or what is it that you're fighting against? And I think Ephesians 6.12 answers that for us of who we are at war against. Paul says, therefore, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. Amen. So it's not flesh and blood that we fight against. And I think what it does boil down to is sin that we fight against. And in that section there in, in Ephesians, what Paul is talking about is putting on the armor of God to, 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 to fight off uh, the enemy. And as I was thinking about it, it's not the armor of God that I'm actually needing. Oftentimes when sin comes knocking at my door, do you know who's the one that just lets it in? It's usually me. I'm, I'm the one that lets it in. And I found that I've become all too comfortable with sin in my life. And you know, I, I think at times, I do, and you may also, we, we like to rank sin, and we like to say that, well, I'm not an adulterer, I'm not a murderer, I'm not any of these things, and we think the smaller sins are okay, and those are the things that, well, they're not really going to bother me, but it's those little things that get in your life that can start changing your thinking and the way that you look at stuff, and so I was thinking about that in my life, and I thought, what are the little ways I'm letting sin creep in, and I'm not being diligent about keep keeping it out? And one of the things I thought about is like TV and movies. Um, I find myself being entertained by things that are mocking what God has called good and things that they are heralding and celebrating that God has called bad. And it's just in these little ways. And I just find myself being entertained by that. I can watch movies that have sex scenes that show things that I don't need to be in my head and I don't think twice about it anymore. I think also in music. As I'm switching through the, the radio in my car, I can stop on a song and sing every lyric to it. But when I stop to think what it's talking about, oftentimes, it's, if it's not on the Christian station, it's sex, it's drugs, it's all kinds of things that's just little things in my head that starts changing my own thinking. And I think oftentimes we turn to movies, TV, things like that to kind of numb us. It's to self-medicate uh, from the strong stresses that we have at work or whatever it is. 
And maybe for you, maybe it's not movies or TV. Maybe it's a strong drink at the end of the day to take the edge off. Or maybe it's a glass of wine to deal with the stresses of the kids after they've gone to bed. Or maybe it's video games as a place that you turn to. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying any of those things are bad in and of themselves. I mean, TV, movies, music, video games, alcohol, they're all neutral. It's all in how we use it is what makes it good or bad. And it's when we're turning to that to fulfill us or to self-medicate instead of turning to Christ is what we should be doing. And I'm sure, Marilyn, you should probably say I should walk, uh, watch Hallmark movies, right? And then I don't have to worry about that. So I think for us, the question comes down to how do we defeat sin in our lives? Well, the answer is we don't have to. If you look at 1 Peter 2, 24, it says there, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree and we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So it's not that we have to bear down and say, well, I have to do better this week. I need to just do this or that. No, somebody's already done it for us. Christ has already conquered sin and death, and what we need to do is rest in that. Instead of turning to any of these other things that we think are going to self-medicate, these things that are fleeting, these things that are short, we need to turn to, to Christ, because he has already defeated that, and he is far more fulfilling than any of those things that I mentioned can ever be. What we need to do is lean on Christ and the work that he has already done and that that sanctification process that he is doing. And thinking about sanctification, I thought about 1 Peter 1.7. And in there, he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I was thinking about that, the testing of, of, of gold. Um, do you guys know the process that a goldsmith uses to take impurities out of precious metals? What he does is he heats it up. And what happens is those impurities rise to the top, and that's called dross. And then the goldsmith will take that dross out of there and take the impurities away. And it's the same thing in our lives as we deal with stress or as we deal with the things that are going on and we turn to the things that we don't. And we ask God, our Father, Jesus, forgive us for what we've done because those impurities rise to the top and God forgives us of it. He says, your sins are forgiven, you shall not die, and those impurities are taken away. And that's what we call sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ. And do you know how the goldsmith knows that he's done and he doesn't need to heat it up anymore? It's when he looks into that precious metal and he can see his own reflection. And the same is true with us. As he wipes that dross away and he wipes our, our sins away, he looks down on us and he says, that is my son and that he is forgiving us and that as he wipes it away, we are to look more and more like Christ. And that's what our lives are to reflect. And then at the end of our lives or any time, anything good that we've done, we can look back and say, it's not because of me. It's not because I decided to do this or I decided to do that. It's because of the work that God has done in us. It's the work that Christ has done on the cross for us. And we can turn to him. And just like David, we can give all honor and glory and praise to him.
Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come here and to study your word and to see the words that David has given us here. We thank you for how your word reminds us of the impurities that we have and the things in our life that we need to be reminded that don't need to be there, Lord. We thank you for the work on the cross that Christ did in saving us from these sins and that all we have to do is just turn to him. Lord, we thank you for just the fullness of who you are and the breadth and knowledge of what you've given us in this Bible to remind us of that. And Lord, we, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.